36 years old, Martin Luther had become a celebrity. Uh, His writings were being sold far and wide, not only in Germany, but throughout Europe. A printer in Basel, Switzerland, took several of Luther's writings, including the 95 Theses, and he put them all together in one book, and he soon reported that he had only 10 copies left, that he had never had a book sell out so quickly. Uh, Today, people put posters of celebrities on their walls, we think Luther may well have been the first ever celebrity treated this way. Uh, With the invention of the printing press, people were getting prints of woodcuts of Luther and they were hanging them up, posting them in their homes. Uh, One very famous one portrayed Luther as Hercules with the Pope hanging from his nose. Luther never asked for any of that. As a monk, he had struggled inwardly to find peace with God, and he had found his answer in the Bible, that sinners like us are made right before God, not by our own works, but by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This message of salvation by faith alone and Jesus alone It it revolutionized Luther's life, but as we heard last week, his attempt to have scholars debate the issue went haywire. When some folks took his 95 theses, which he had written for scholars in Latin, these folks translated them into German and then began printing them and spreading them throughout the nation. Suddenly, Luther is charged with heresy by the Catholic Church. He's now been awaiting his trial for not just months, but for years. He expects he might be forcibly kidnapped and taken to Rome or simply assassinated at any time. One of the groups in Germany that came to support Luther were the Knights. Uh, Their home base was a castle in Ebernburg where one of their leaders would read Luther's writings to them. According to Bainton, from whose book I'm taking these introductions, one popular pamphlet that was being spread around Germany told the story of a peasant who paid only half of a fine that he owed to the Catholic Church as an act of penance. A knight came and told the peasant, you should not have even paid the first half. Jesus told his disciples not to take people's money when he sent them out. Jesus says that in Matthew 10, Mark 6, Luke 9, and Luke 10. The peasant responded in surprise, Sir Knight, how do you know so much scripture? And the knight's answer, We've learned from Luther's books, read to us each evening at the castle. Well, with knights promising to protect Luther, his courage grew. He wrote a book called The Babylonian Captivity, in which he denied five of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church as unbiblical. According to Luther, only baptism and the Lord's Supper are the actual sacraments taught in the pages of the Bible. He also taught another radical idea, the priesthood of all believers. Because Jesus is our great high priest, all Christians have access to God through him. 
We don't need to go to a Catholic priest to represent us before God. We're all priests. We're all able to relate to God through Jesus. The Catholic Church treated priests as higher citizens in the kingdom than lay people. But Luther denied all that. He declared that every part of Christ's body is important. The businessman, the wife keeping her home, these were all important roles, just as important as the preacher, because everything done in obedience to God honors him and shows his worth. Up to this point, the Catholic Mass was, um, well, the people were allowed to eat the bread, but only the priest were allowed to drink the wine. They said that the lay people were just too clumsy, that the lay people would spill the blood of Jesus. But Luther put an end to all of that. He says all Christians are to eat the bread and drink the wine, receiving those elements as Christ's pledge that he is indeed their Savior and that he will bring them to the great wedding feast in heaven. So Luther was, was bringing all of Europe back to the Bible, back to the Scripture. What does the Bible say on this? What does the Bible say on that? And in doing so, he was knocking down one domino after another of the teaching of the Catholic Church. As you can imagine, the church responded. The Pope issued what was called a papal bull. It basically was a document declaring Martin Luther a heretic and excommunicating him from the church. This document meant that Luther was to be treated as a hell-bound man and as an enemy of the truth. Towns and villages throughout the Holy Roman Empire held book burnings in their town centers. They would burn any of Luther's works that could be found. Uh, the papal bull had said, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause, a wild boar, has invaded thy vineyard. And this was Luther. He was the wild boar simple, whose simple teaching of Scripture was wreaking havoc on the church. Luther wrote to a friend at this time. He said, Our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, against the world rulers of this darkness. Let us then stand firm, and heed the trumpet of the Lord. Satan is fighting not against us, but against Christ in us. We fight the battles of the Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? Luther wrote an appeal to the nobility of Germany. He called for them to join his cause and to bring the churches of Germany back to the Bible. Yet according to the teaching of the Catholic Church, the Pope was the sole interpreter of Scripture. Who was Luther to say that he knew better than the Pope what the Bible taught? Luther responded, Balaam's ass was wiser than the prophet himself. If God then spoke by an ass against a prophet, why should he not even now be able to speak by a righteous man against the Pope? When the papal bull that excommunicated Martin Luther finally reached Wittenberg, the people there had a public burning, not of Luther's books, but of the papal bull itself. Luther saw that this was not an attack on himself, but on the gospel of Jesus. From this moment on, Luther saw that the Pope was actually taking the side of false teaching. 
that the Pope was taking the side of a false gospel against the true gospel. Luther said, they excommunicated me for the sacrilege of heresy, so I excommunicate them in the name of the sacred truth of God. Christ will judge whose excommunication will stand. Now, though Luther, in his private letters to the Pope, showed respect for the man, he was convinced that the office of the Pope, with all of the cardinals and the whole papal system, he was convinced it was both unbiblical and contrary to Christ. And so from this point on, he would refer to the Pope as the Antichrist. He had printed his reply to the papal bull, and it included these words. Peepers, sorry, Peter said that you should give a reason for the faith that is in you. This bull contemns me from its own word without any proof from Scripture, whereas I back up all my assertions from the Bible. I ask you, ignorant Antichrist, do you think that with your naked words you can prevail against the armor of Scripture? The knights offered to fight for Luther. They wanted a war. Luther said, I am not willing to fight for the gospel with bloodshed. The world is conquered by the word, and by the word the church is served and rebuilt. Well, finally, the time for Luther's trial came. His life would be in grave danger. Would he leave the safety of Wittenberg and expose himself to danger by showing up there in the city of Worms? Luther knew that it wasn't really him, but Christ's truth that was on trial. And so he wrote to Frederick the Wise and he said, I will go even if I am too sick to stand on my feet. If violence is used, so be it. I commend my cause to God. He lives and reigns who saved those three boys from the fiery furnace of the king of Babylon. And if he will not save me, my head is worth nothing compared with Christ. This is not a time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. And so the trial began January of 1521. But Luther's part didn't come to the very end in April. He had to answer for what he had written and the charges that were laid against him. The climactic day was April 18th. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Well, since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Why did Luther change his mind about the Pope? Uh, even after he had embraced the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, he had not immediately rejected the Pope. Uh, he had been taught since he was very young that the Pope was the head of the church. 
why did Luther suddenly embrace this idea of the priesthood of all believers? He was a priest himself. He was now teaching something that put himself out of business. He was a Catholic priest before his excommunication. Now he's teaching all people are priests. What, what changed for him? What changed was that Luther was continuing to saturate himself with the Bible. And there he found this truth of solus Christus, Christ alone. Here is the truth in a nutshell. We do not look to ourselves, but to Christ alone for salvation, because he is the only mediator between God and man. This truth, taught in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, changed everything. It was this truth that meant that Luther could no longer continue in the Roman Catholic system. It was this truth that brought Luther to see that churches didn't just need a little change in theology. Churches needed to be radically reformed in practice. Frankly, you and I are here this morning in a Baptist church, worshiping the way we do, understanding the world the way we do, living our Christian lives the way we do, because of what Luther helped the world to see in Scripture about Christ as our only mediator. So look at the passage, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, In this passage, Paul's writing about prayer. He's calling Christians to pray. Uh, We're to pray for all people and those who lead them. Uh, As we pray for the world, we should ask that God's people would be permitted to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So we're to pray against persecution We're to pray against attitudes and policies that would force Christians to suffer as they seek to obey Jesus. Paul tells us that these prayers for the safety and the welfare of the church of Christ are good and pleasing to God. In verse 4, we have a wonderful statement that God desires all people to be saved. And I am a Calvinist from the top of my head to my toes. And I believe that any person who comes to Christ does so because they were chosen from before the foundation of the world. But if you agree with me on that, do not let your Calvinism rob you of the joy of verse 4. God genuinely does desire the salvation of all people. Over and over again in Scripture, we find God issuing universal calls to salvation and He really means them. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, lamenting that the people in that city would not turn to him, he was genuinely weeping. God loves souls created in his image and he desires the salvation of all people. There are two wills in God, his secret will and his revealed will. Ultimately, for the higher glory of his name, God has decreed to love some people with an effectual love that draws them to himself in salvation, but God has not given us their names. That's part of his secret will. But what God has revealed is that he genuinely calls for all people to be saved and that we are to long for that as well. We are to go to all men, all women, all boys, all girls, and we're to tell them about Jesus 
And we're to pray for the welfare of Christians all around the world because we want Christians to have the freedom and the ability to live lives of witness and evangelism. We pray for the welfare of Christians around the world, not only for their sakes, but for the sake of their witness, for the sakes of the lost. So it's in this context that Paul writes 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Look at it. Verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I simply want to lead us through five observations about this verse. Here we go. Number one, we need a mediator. We need a mediator. Uh, This verse implies that men, meaning mankind, male and female, old and young, we need a mediator between us and God. You and I in this room need a mediator. So, So think of two people, and they have a very serious disagreement with one another. How can this disagreement be resolved? Well, sometimes we bring in a mediator to help. The mediator works to bring the two sides together. The mediator works to help resolve the issues and to bring peace. The Bible is clear that there is a serious divide between mankind and God. He is holy. And He made us to be holy. But we have transgressed His law, broken His law, made ourselves criminals in His world. The divide, the issue between us and God is our sin. And not just one sin. Sin upon sin upon sin. It's not just that there's an occasional sin here or an occasional sin there. It's that there is sin deep in our hearts, pervading our minds, polluting our souls. The Bible's assessment of man is that we have become corrupt and rotten. And yet in His great love, God looks upon wicked human beings and chooses to love them still. And He desires reconciliation. But how in the world can that be done? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Righteousness cannot make peace with evil. And God cannot make peace with us. He would deny Himself. He would cease to be God if He is the holy, holy God made peace with us in our wicked rebellion and evil. Is there a solution? Is there a way to bring sinful man and holy God together? And the answer is yes. That solution is a mediator. One who can go between and bring God and man together. So second observation. God has appointed a mediator. From the foundations of the world. Before God even created man, God intended to carry out this work of salvation. He intended to put on display the glory of His attributes of mercy and grace that we might marvel and enjoy Him all the more. And so within the Trinity, God the Father appointed God the Son to fulfill the role of a mediator. 1 Peter 1.20 He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
John 6.27 Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father, has set His seal. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in him my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Our verse here in 1 Timothy makes clear that Jesus Christ is the mediator appointed by God to bring peace between him and sinful men. Observation number three. The humanity of Christ is essential. Jesus Christ is both fully 100% God and fully 100% man. But this verse emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The Son of God could not be our mediator without becoming a man. Without Christmas... Without the incarnation, there could be no peace between God and sinners. Friends, if the Son of God had not become the Son of Man, we would still be lost. We would still be in our sins. We would still be under the wrath of God. But the Son of God humbled Himself. And without any change to His divine nature, He added to Himself a human nature and was born as a son of Adam. He became one of us. He became part of our race, part of our kind. He became a human being, and he came as God's appointed mediator. Everything Jesus did and continues to do as a man, he does in this office and for this purpose, to represent all who will believe on him and to bring them peace with God. So, What are the issues between us and God? Well, there's the issue of our lack of righteousness. Uh, To be holy as we were made to be. It doesn't just mean that there's no sin. It means there must be positively righteous. There must be goodness. There must be purity. There must be good thoughts, good words, good deeds in order for us to be truly holy. As we said last week, our problem is not just that we have F's on our report card. It's that we don't have A's. Well, Jesus lived his entire life as a mediator, accomplishing righteousness on behalf of all who would believe on him. He trusted his Father as we ought. He walked in the Spirit as we ought. And he loved everyone as we ought. He thought holy thoughts. He spoke holy words. And he he sacrificed and gave himself and spent himself in love. He lived the righteous life that we have failed to live, and he did so in this office as mediator. So that when we believe on him, all of the righteousness that he accomplished in those years of his life on this earth are accounted to us. And then there was that other issue between us and God, the fact that we've committed crimes. The fact that we're sinners, that we've broken the law and we've got to be judged for that. And so what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. And he takes all of that judgment upon himself. And then there is yet still another, another issue. 
It's the issue of the fact that even when we believe on Jesus and our sins are forgiven and we're counted right in the, in the sight of God, we're still not made holy yet. We in this room who are Christians, we have been declared righteous before God and in the courts of heaven, but we're not righteous yet. We still sin. We still fall down. We still mess up. Well, Jesus has taken care of that by giving his spirit to us as the mediator who is working in us to make us holy, to make us, to make us righteous in truth. On the day that, that we die or the day that Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, the Christian will be made what he's already been declared to be, holy through and through before God. Here's what I'm telling you, church. Every issue that separated you from God, Christ has dealt with as a mediator. The obstacles were huge. There was a Mount Everest of issues between us and God who could possibly remove them. Jesus Christ came as mediator and he has removed them so that there is nothing keeping you from reconciliation with God except your own willingness to believe or not to believe. Number four, Christ is the only mediator. The only mediator. This was the key issue in Luther's day, and I think it's even more crucial in ours. There is no other mediator. There is no one else that can make you right with God. The prophet Muhammad, Joseph Smith, no other person is qualified or able to do what Christ has done for sinners. There is one God, Paul says. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now in Catholic teaching, Jesus is our mediator, but he's not the only mediator. The saints in heaven are also mediators. So you can pray to saints in heaven and they will intercede for you before God. The Pope is a mediator. According to Catholicism, he has the power to bring people into heaven or to shut people out of heaven. Catholics believe in purgatory, this place where people suffer for a while and then they go to heaven. And Luther asked, look, if the Pope can just set people free from purgatory, why doesn't he just do it right now? Why doesn't he just set them free? But of course, there is no purgatory in the Bible. And the Pope has no such power. And then there are all these other human priests. Martin Luther was one of these. And these, these human priests supposedly represent us before God. They, they plead our case before God. So when, when Catholics go to confession, they take their sins to the priest. And the priest then, on behalf of God, tells them what they must do to atone for their sins. Pray three Hail Marys, so forth. Mount Hermon, none of that is scriptural. None of that is found in the pages of the Bible. Jesus is your one and your only priest, your great high priest. If you want God to hear your prayers, you go to Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. By the way, praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean that you simply tack on those words to the end of the prayer. You can, but you don't need to tack on those words. 
Praying in Jesus' name means that you're praying in such a way that you know it's only through Jesus that God is hearing my prayer. Jesus is my advocate before God. Jesus takes the prayer that I pray and he brings it to the Father on my behalf. We worship God through Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God is the Father of Jesus Christ. And when we believe on Christ and are made one with Him, God becomes our Father too. Our whole relationship with God centers on Jesus. He's our righteousness. He's our forgiveness of sins. He is our door to heaven. He is our peace with God. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Is he precious to you? Listen to Richard Sibbs. Shall our sins discourage us when Christ appears before God for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him. Do not take Satan's counsel. Go to Christ. Although trembling as the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh. He is bone of our bone for this reason, that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God since we have such a mediator with him who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. I don't care how sinful you are, how messed up, how guilty you feel, how hopeless you feel. Look to Jesus and see that there is one before God who can take away your sins and give you eternal life. Run to Jesus and fling yourself upon him and find rest for your weary soul. Jesus is the only mediator who can remove your guilt, make you righteous, and bring you peace with God. Observation number five. Christ is an active mediator. So some people fill offices and have titles, and they're really just titles. They don't actually do anything. Some people hold figurehead positions, right? They, they hold an office, but there's not actually a job description attached. Christ is not just a figurehead. When we say that Christ is a mediator, we are talking about what he actually does. He is acting right now on your behalf as a mediator, dear Christian. Uh, Christ is a prophet. He speaks to us from God. He brings God's message to us. The whole Bible comes from the Spirit of Christ and is the Word of Christ. Not just the red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, don't think those letters are better than the the others. The whole Bible, we're told, comes to us by the Spirit of Christ. It's all the Word of Jesus. The Pope does not speak for God. Your friend who comes to you and says, God gave me a message for you. Be wary of that. But there is one who speaks to you authoritatively from God, and it is Jesus Christ, and he does so through the pages of the Bible. 
More than that, He's given us the Holy Spirit who works through the Bible to open our eyes to its truth. We are given understanding and conviction and courage and hope as the Spirit helps us. So Christ is our prophet. Christ, dear church, is our only prophet. He's also our only priest. Priests offer sacrifices. We've already seen how Christ offered Himself as the ultimate sacrifice to God on our behalf. As our priest, he stands before God, the wounds in his hands and feet, a constant reminder before God that our sins have been paid for, that justice has been satisfied. As our priest, we go to Jesus in prayer. We, we put our praises and our requests into the hands of Christ. He brings them faithfully to the Father. This is the context of 1 Timothy 2.5. We can pray because Jesus is our mediator. And of course, Jesus is our only king. As mediator, Jesus is head of the church. There is no other head. The Pope has no authority here. Neither do I or Pastor Merle. Only the authority that Christ gives in His Word. Your pastors are not the head of the church. Your deacons are not the head of the church. Christ alone is head of the church. And He leads and guides through His teaching in the Word. Here is good news for sinners like us. God has provided a mediator to make us right with Him. Jesus Christ is a prophet, He is a priest, and He is a king. He is everything that we need. He is more than you could have ever dreamed for or imagined. Do not turn to other mediators, but center your life on Christ. Love Him, trust Him. And enjoy the peace that God gives only through him. Amen? Amen. Let us be a church that centers our life on Christ alone. Let's pray.